0: As well, Psalm 29, we are finishing a mini-series called The Why and How of What We Do. The Why and How of What We Do. It's really about our, our basic philosophy of ministry that we summarize like this. We gather for worship, we gather for community, and we scatter, you might say, for mission. That's an oversimplification, very much so. But I think it captures the essential rhythm of Grace Church. We gather for worship right here on Sunday mornings. We gather for community, especially in our small groups, as Joshua talked about. And we scatter, you might say, for mission in all those places where God has put you, your neighborhood, your workplace, your campus, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Oh, this is the third week, and we've been working backwards in that philosophy of ministry. Today we want to talk about gathering for worship. I'm going to pray, and then Mindy's going to read for us Psalm 29. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for how you've been meeting us already. We now deliberately position ourselves under your authoritative word. We ask you to speak again through what you've already spoken. We know your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It gets done what you want it to get done in our hearts and lives. And so we pause and we say we welcome that. Have your full way, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Good morning. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you many so much. I get that. Thank you. The series we're calling the why and how of what we do, it's a bit of a misnomer, you might say, for this sermon, because I talked about the how of our gathered worship last fall, and I'm really not going to do that today. Um, There's a document that I covered, actually, last fall, and it's back at the information table. It's on the website all the time also. I really want to talk about the why instead and focus on the why. Friends, why are you here? Why are you here this morning? Why? You might say, my dad and mom forced me to be here, and that's why I'm here against my will. Or you might say, it's, it's just a habit. I, I, I always do this. I'm here Sunday mornings. Or you might be sitting there thinking, I don't know why I'm here. Friends, you need... You need biblical answers to the why question for what we're doing right now, and you need that more than ever. An article entitled, Too Busy for Church, appeared in the Christian Science Monitor. Too Busy for Church, it asks. There's an app for that. Dallas residents Lincoln and Natalie Redman spent two years bouncing from church to church, the article says, but they couldn't find the right fit. Then they saw an Instagram post for an online ministry of a church in Seattle. Again, they live in Dallas. We have a new location, the pastor said in a video, and that location is everywhere. And then he announced the church's new app, which live streams their services and provides other benefits, bringing, quote, pulpits and pews into pockets and palms. Pulpits and pews into pockets and palms. Ms. Redmond said, quote, the app changed their definition of church. Catch that. The app changed their definition of church. She says, So if we're going shopping at the grocery store or we're driving our car and we're singing worship music through the app, all of that means church. And I think that is what is happening today. We're allowing the convenience of technology, the blessing of technology to change our definition of church. And what happens is we begin to perhaps subtly but seriously devalue gathering as a church. Now that's nothing new, but I do think it's more pronounced now. We forget why we gather like this. Have you possibly forgotten We start to think, well, it's fine if I make it. You know what? It's fine if I don't. I mean, San Diego has a lot to offer. I can take it or leave it, gathering on Sundays for worship, other Christians. I mean, maybe I'll make it, but you know what? I might get a better offer. Maybe something else will come up. Maybe I've got other commitments that are more important to me. So, so here's my question. Why are you here? I hope you leave here knowing why. Because we need biblical convictions informing this practice, and I want to give you three. We're going to look at a few different passages. We're going to start in Psalm 29, and we're going to draw three, three reasons why Three reasons why we ought to, I think, gather regularly, habitually, and consistently for worship together. Here's reason number one. Reason number one, gather for worship to exalt God. Gather for worship to exalt God. I'll explain that in a minute. First, a caveat. The New Testament is clear. All of life for the Christian, all of life is worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercies, presents your bodies, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, quote, your spiritual worship. All of life for the Christian is worship. You might call it constant worship. But gathered worship on the Lord's day, on Sunday, on the day Jesus rose from the dead, is a vital part of our constant worship. That's been the practice of the early church since its earliest days. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, the first day, Sunday, when we were gathered together... To break bread, Paul talked with them. That's perhaps the earliest reference we have to the church gathering on Sunday. They gathered to break bread, probably a larger shared meal, which included the Lord's Supper. And they gathered for the preaching of God's Word. Or 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, Paul says. On the first day of every week. Each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper. What's he saying? He's saying, Corinthians, as you meet every single Sunday as part of your gathered worship, I want you to invest financially in the offering I'm taking. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 all encompass apostolic direction for gathered worship. So, The New Testament does stress constant worship. But what I want you to realize is gathered worship is a vital part of our constant worship. But I haven't defined what worship is yet. We haven't defined what worship is yet. And that's why we started with Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is a hymn of praise to God. Notice verse 1. Verse 1 again, it says, Ascribe, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory Do His name. Worship the Lord, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, there are many good definitions of worship out there many legitimate definitions of worship, but I do believe this definition should be at the core, the definition we derive from verse 2. It is about ascribing to God glory due His name. That's why I say we gather to exalt God. Ascribe to the Lord something of His worth. That doesn't mean we are making God more glorious, that's not possible. It means we're responding to God's glory and that's at the core, you might say, of worship. And now realize that's what we were created to do. We were made for this thing called worship. We were created for this. We are hardwired, aren't we? Hardwired to enjoy beauty and splendor and to respond, to respond with awe and and wonder. It's why people go to the Grand Canyon. You go to the Grand Canyon to see amazing beauty and respond with awe. Look at that view. It's why people enjoy great art and great music. I took my lovely bride to an art exhibit recently, not knowing that they would have on display in this exhibition one of Van Gogh's famous sunflower paintings. And this particular painting is one of Sung's favorites. She has studied this painting, and she has taught fifth graders this painting in our kids' school. So we're taking a tour of this art exhibition, and it's a group of about 20 of us, maybe. And and she is ahead of me in the tour group. She's leading the charge in the tour group. I am lagging behind. And then I hear from my wife across the tour group an audible, (gasps) as she saw that Van Gogh sunflower painting. That's how we're created. To behold beauty and respond with awe. Worship is when we realize God's transcendent beauty. His all-surpassing majesty and beauty and worth. And we respond with our soul's ultimate... our deepest awe and wonder, our greatest joy and satisfaction, that's worship. The problem is we often find our greatest awe and deepest joy in other places, don't we? And that's what the Bible refers to as idolatry, which may be which may be what Psalm 29 is actually addressing. You see, the big false god in this day, in this area, was the Canaanite storm god, Baal. And Baal worship was a constant temptation for God's people. The storm god was a constant temptation for God's people because, well, one, storms can be frightening. If you've been in a major thunderstorm, you know that can be frightening, but also storms are needful. You need storms to water your crops so you can grow food and eat and survive. And so they would worship Baal, thinking that's going to bring rain for the crops. Notice how Psalm 29 points to the true God as the right object of His people's worship. Notice verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The waters, the all-critical waters. The God of glory thunders the lord over many waters verse 5 the voice of the lord with his power breaks the cedars breaks the cedars of lebanon you can imagine lightning strikes splitting trees verse 7 the voice of the lord flashes forth flames of fire with lightning verse 8 The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness with thunder. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. It's the image of a violent thunderstorm rolling in from the sea. And this psalm is saying, the Lord, Yahweh, is the true God of the storm. By his voice, by his word, he rules over all those things. And then notice the connection with his people's worship in verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, in his temple, all his people cry, Glory! He's the true God. Don't worship Baal. Worship him. So catch this. It seems like an effect described in Psalm 29 is that the false worship in our hearts would be pushed back by the true worship of God. And isn't that what we need, friends? Isn't that a good reason to gather and exalt God like this? That the false worship in my heart, as we were just singing those songs, I hope got Push back a little bit as I worshipped the living God through song. You see, when we gather, our attention is directed away from ourselves, isn't it? Away from ourselves as you say, Lord, yours, not mine, is the glory. Yours, not mine, is the power. Yours, not mine, is the majesty. And the strength and the false worship within gets pushed back in Tab's heart, hopefully a little bit as he is reminded of the glory of the one true God. We need this, friends. And a particular way, a particular way you see God's glory is in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Please, please hear this. From 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it is the gospel of the glory of Christ. Ever thought of the gospel that way? The good news? It is the gospel of the glory of Christ. Where Paul says we behold, quote, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. We behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, in the good news of Jesus Christ, we behold the glory of God the Father as loving creator, sovereign king, holy judge, and gracious savior. And in this good news, we behold the glory of God the Son who obeyed perfectly in our place, becoming incarnate, taking on human flesh, suffering God's holy wrath in our stead, and then rose from the dead to abolish death, Scripture says, to abolish death and bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. And in this good news, we behold the glory of God, the Holy Spirit, as the Nicene Creed talked about, as the sovereign spirit, the giver of life, the transformer of our souls, as he unites the believer to the risen Christ. You behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in this gospel gospel. Which is why every Sunday we especially sing the gospel and pray the gospel and preach the gospel and, and see the gospel as it were in the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. there we especially behold God and His glory and we respond with that, (gasps) with awe and wonder. This is why we gather. So let me ask you a little diagnostic question. Friends, do you gather here, with that in mind, do you gather here more out of mere duty Or do you gather here for that kind of delight? Which is your greater motivation? Mere pull yourself up by your bootstraps, duty to be here, or delight as you respond to glory? I believe there is a sense of duty because we are created for worship. But Jesus Christ opens for us this privilege to behold God's glory and respond with awe and wonder and praise. That's the first reason we gather to exalt God. And second reason, reason number two, we gather for worship to, you might say, encounter God. We gather for worship also to encounter God himself in his, in his manifest presence. God is everywhere equally present But we encounter him in a way, in his nearness, uniquely as we gather. Look at how Psalm 29 ends. It ends in verse 11 with, May the Lord give strength to his people. It began with, ascribe to the Lord. And now it ends with, may the Lord give to you strength, you worshipers. May the Lord bless His people with peace. The psalm begins, go and, and bless God. And then you come back with even more blessing yourself. And this is a dynamic we see in Scripture in a number of places. Ligon Duncan has talked about how he thinks, uh, he thinks of the priestly blessing of Numbers chapter 6 that way. Of God saying to Moses, don't let my people go without me blessing them. It's the dynamic of encountering God. Receiving from God that I think we find in Psalm 50 as well. You might want to turn there if you have a Bible. Psalm 50. In that Psalm, we find in verse 7. Hear, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. Against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So it's a context of Old Testament worship. Sacrifices, burnt offerings. Notice verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your field. Why? For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. God basically sang... Don't go through some act of mindless worship as if it's all about giving to me something I lack. Instead, he says, verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Recognize how good he's been to you. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And notice, and call upon me in the day of trouble. God says, I will deliver you. And notice, and you shall glorify me. It's worship. Glorifying God in Psalm 50 is not giving to God something he lacks. Glorifying God in Psalm 50 is coming to him for what we lack. Do you see that? You see that dynamic as well in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 14 especially. We won't go there right now. It talks about the gift of New Testament prophecy and how God ministers to us that way, builds us up as we'll talk about. We encounter God, you might say, in that way. So much so that the apostle describes an unbeliever Someone who's not yet believed in Jesus in their midst and the secrets of their hearts are disclosed and they fall on their face and declare, God is in your midst! <laughs> that is encountering God, is it not? Friends, this is part of our worship. Let me, let me illustrate it by borrowing an illustration from, from pastor and author Sam Storms. He, he talks about a... a popular worship song by Matt Redman, who I'm not putting down. We sing some of his songs. And in verse 1, it talks about we are here for you. We are here for you. And there are a couple ways you can take that. We are here for you. He says, you could take it kind of like this. Imagine that a person in your church is ill and bedridden, and while he is helplessly laid up, His house suffers disrepair. The yard is overgrown and in desperate need of help. And so you and your home group from church show up at his house seeking to do for him what he cannot do for himself. And he asks, why are you here, home group? And everyone says, we are here for you. We are here because you're needy. We are here because you need us. We are here to help you. That's one way to think about that worship line and worship in general. Biblical worship is more like this. He continues the illustration. After your hard day at work on your friend's yard in 100 degree temperatures, you are desperately thirsty. You are parched. And suddenly there appears a truck at the curb offering ice, cold, refreshing water. You run to the driver and say, we are here for you. little different, right? He says you are there for what the driver can supply to you. You don't pretend to bring him anything other than your thirst. You are desperate for refreshment. You are there humbly asking him for what he alone can provide. Life-giving, thirst-quenching, soul-refreshing water. Friends, that's what I hope Matt Redman meant. That's biblical worship. That's what I mean by encountering God. He is glorified as the giver. And you recognize and you're the needy receiver. And that's the kind of worship Jesus makes possible, isn't it? He? he says in Matthew 11, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, rest for your souls. He says in John chapter 7 if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, certainly, those are pictures of salvation. I think they are pictures of salvation. But I ask you, don't we enjoy those blessings of salvation? In a sense, over and over as we keep coming to Jesus for renewed rest for our souls and renewed drinking for our thirsty hearts, don't we continue to enjoy that? And as we do, that's worship too. So ask yourself this diagnostic question. How often do you gather right here with an expectation of God meeting you in some way? Do you? Do you arrive here with an expectation, an anticipation? I wonder what God's going to do. Now, I don't mean you are looking for that special feeling, that the music be just right, and it moves you. That's too much pressure on Scott and the, <laughs> and the music team that he's asking for musicians to help with. It's not about coming here and saying, I hope, I hope the music moves me just right. I, ho- I, hope, I hope the lighting is appropriate for the mood. I mean, these fluorescent lights are always beating down on me and ruining the feeling. I don't mean that. But I do mean an expectation, an expectancy that God wants to glorify himself as the gracious giver. As you recognize you are the needy receiver, and that's part of your worship. See, I know it can be tempting to say, I'm too weighed down to go to church this morning. But it's then we need to say, I'm coming again to gather with your people to find rest in Jesus. Jesus. I know it can be tempting to say I feel too dry spiritually to come and gather for worship. But it's then we need to say I'm coming and gathering in your pe- with your people, Jesus, to drink again for my soul. It can be tempting to say I'm too overwhelmed by life. I'm too busy. Schedule's too full to gather for worship. But friends, it's then we need to say, God, I'm gathering. I'm gathering because in this time of trouble... You will deliver me and I will glorify you. We gather for worship to encounter God like that. And one more reason, one more reason why we must, friends, regularly, habitually gather for worship. Reason number three, gather for worship to be edified by God, to be built up. Gather for worship to be edified by God. Now, we're sort of pulling on everything we've already said, but track with me here. Because God edifies us in many ways, and He often uses means, including, what I want to highlight here, the means of His people, the means of one another. Ephesians chapter 5, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but notice, be Filled with the Spirit. Be continually filled with the Spirit. And notice one of the effects. Addressing one another. Addressing one another. In psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Or Colossians chapter 3, very similarly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Did you notice the very interesting horizontal aspects of our singing? Did you see that? I mean all of, all of 1 Corinthians 14 speaks to this. Corinthians, you're crazy. What's going on? Gather gather to have intelligible meetings so that people are edified, built up. God fills us with His Spirit, Ephesians 5. The Word of Christ dwells in us richly, Colossians 3. And we sing truth to each other, and you're built up. In other words, our gathered worship, friends, our gathered worship... (laughs) has the potential of profoundly shaping us. A negative example from history is from a guy named Arius in the fourth century. Arius denied the deity of Christ. Very deadly heresy he was promoting, denying that Jesus is fully divine as God the Son. Well, Arius was a heretical theologian, but a capable songwriter. (laughs) Dangerous combination. He used songs to popularize his heretical teaching. One of the lines from his, one of his songs was this, quote, there was a time when the logos, the word, was not. Referencing John 1, there was a time when the word was not. With the apostle John rolling over in his grave. And these songs help spread his heresy. Our singing shapes us same is true for us in a positive way, I trust. As we sing the Bible and the good news, as we pray the Bible and the good news, as we read, preach the Bible, God's Word and God's Gospel, filled with the Spirit, the Word of Christ dwelling within us, He builds us up in this most holy faith. Friends, I hope you see that when some people say Jesus didn't create an organized religion, they're mistaken. He very much expects us to organize. (laughs) Those verses are saying, have meeting times and meeting places so that Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and 1 Corinthians 14 can happen and you build each other up. So I want to ask you, One last diagnostic question. Do you still see your need for other people right here in this community center on Sunday mornings? Do you still see your need for others, that they might be edified, and that you might be edified yourself? It's why we think of our services as a team sport, not a spectator sport. We're after participation together, not personal consumption. It's easy as Americans to come as a consumer, thinking, do I like the product? No, we come with all the players on the field. Everyone's in the choir. Everyone's to sing. You can thank me for this later, Scott. Everyone's to engage with God's word in the preaching. It's not just a monologue. You're engaging with God, I hope, right now. We take the Lord's Supper, communing with God together as a body. Friends, do you see your need for others as you gather right here and their need for you? We began asking, why are you here? And I hope you can answer that question now. I hope it's not, my mom and dad forced me to be here. I hope it's not merely, it's a habit, that's a good habit to have, <laughs> but not merely it's just what I rotely do, just a routine, I hope instead you recognize that we, friends, were created and redeemed for worship, ascribed to the Lord, the glory to his name. And I hope you recognize our need for God and you gather to be met by Him and receive from Him and so glorify Him as the all-gracious giver in Jesus. And I hope you recognize your need, our need for each other as the Spirit fills us and the Word of Christ dwells within us and we sing truth and we're built up in this most holy faith. I hope you see why you're here right now. But if you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to close with this. I want to thank you for being here. I want to tell you something that Jesus said one time. He was talking to a lady who was, at the time, I think very far from God. And Jesus said this to her He said, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor down in Jerusalem. Will you worship the Father? She was consumed with place. He said, neither place. But the hour is coming, he went on, and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He was saying, in essence, one certain place doesn't define true worship. One certain person does. True worship happens through a relationship with God in Christ, and I just want to urge you as we close that you would become a true worshiper of God by turning from going your own way and trusting in Jesus Christ, by turning from going your own way in what the Bible calls sin, and turning to Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God, to take away your sins and make you into a true worshiper of him. I urge you to do so as we close. You see, true worship, friends, is only possible because of the crucified, risen, and reigning Savior. And that's why we're going to close taking the Lord's Supper together. So with the music team please come back?